Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Hello, I'm Dr. Billy Pivnik. And I'm Dr. Romy Redding. And welcome back to Couched. We're thrilled to welcome two wonderful guests. First, Dr. Jules Gill-Peterson, Associate Professor of History at Johns Hopkins University, and the author of the book, Histories of the Transgender Child. We are also joined by Dr. Avi Sakatapulu, esteemed psychoanalyst and prize-winning author of numerous papers and a forthcoming book, Sexuality Beyond Consent, Risk, Race, Traumatophilia. Please go to our website to read more about their many achievements and other published works, www.couchedpodcast.org. Thank you, Billy. Welcome. We're so excited you're joining us. It's great to have you both. And we want to welcome our listeners, both first time and returning. So we're excited to dive into the conversation. So I say, let's begin. And there's a lot of points of entry we can choose from, given the vast breadth of both of your work. Jules, amongst the many points that you make in your book, you discuss how our current culture holds to the myth that transgender and gender nonconforming children have suddenly appeared. And your book does a fantastic job of debunking this. So maybe you can say a little bit about this to help us find our way into the conversation, and then we'll go from there. Yeah, you bet. Well, thank you again so much for having me. I'm just so excited to talk with you all today. And it's true, it feels almost a little funny to say this now. I mean, you can barely go through a day without hearing about trans youth and trans kids in the news or on social media, and often for pretty awful political reasons. But it's true that in many ways, most people understandably have sort of taken the fact that only recently have we begun to get to know the idea that there are trans kids out there in the world as somehow proof that they're somehow new in arrival, you know, on the face of the earth. And in many ways, that is a kind of idea about trans people in general that were late arrivals, or there's something very futuristic about us that we could only exist with a certain medical, technological, or some other kind of ingredient, as opposed to the fact that trans people have been around a long time. But yeah, the book that I put together is one that really tried to understand where trans children have been for the last hundred years, and also a little bit about why we haven't paid attention to them. And so I ended up focusing on the history of medicine, a little bit the history of psychiatry there as well. And, you know, it really turned out that there were a lot of trans youth present in some of the medical clinics that we already knew quite a bit about for their role in medicalizing sex, gender, and including trans people's bodies. But those kids had sort of passed kind of under the radar for a bunch of complicated reasons, but one of which was that the interest in young people for a long time has really just been in the fact that we presume children are the origin of people, of adult kinds of people. And we really look to young people through this kind of overly developmental lens. And so it's very hard for our culture, I think, in a lot of ways to take children seriously, because we're always looking at them, hoping they'll tell us about something that doesn't really have to do with who they are, but has to do with who they might become, who we're maybe afraid of whom they might become, what their becoming says about who we are as adults. And so 
I think it's a really important moment for all of us to think about what it would mean to sort of understand that trans kids aren't a new arrival, but also to understand the fallout of them having been so routinely dismissed. Because, you know, if you just showed up to the party, right, you might get kicked out. That's one of the ways in which, although I'm kind of a nerdy historian above all, I feel real kind of stakes in turning to these stories, especially right now. Thank you. That's a wonderful way of capturing so much of the density of your book in such a concise way. Thank you. So Avi, given that many have clinical questions and concerns about how best to help children, teens, and families grapple with gender dysphoria, could you share with us some of your expertise about the complexities of this issue and the controversies that permeate the field? And I'm asking you that as an opener because that's your expertise is the clinical realm. But answer it as you wish. And if you'd rather respond to Jules's opening statement, feel free. Thank you. Thank you, Billy. And thank you both for inviting us to this. And thank you, Jules, for accepting the invitation for all of us to speak here together. I actually think that the question that you're asking, Billy, is very much connected with what Jules was saying about um, her archival work into trans children and into the long lineage of their existence and the efforts to suppress evidence of their existence. And Jules does a, a wonderful job cataloging for us, walking us through how the archives have been suppressed and also what kinds of archives in terms of like their racial composition make it to the surface. So to start with, when we're talking about trans children, we're talking about both histories of erasure and then the effort that needs to go into beginning to think clinically about these children existing. So to even start asking the kinds of questions that we need to think about clinically, we need to have in mind a lot of, this is part of the complexity of working with trans populations in general, but trans children in particular. At this point, at this historical moment in time, one needs to have in mind that there's a whole lineage of thought that has been suppressed such that it appears as if something has erupted in the scene that requires an explication that reaches outside of, of the everyday and into some magical place for new theories that come out of nowhere that are forced upon us or so the story goes. So oftentimes when I sit with parents who come to me seeking various kinds of help around their children, part of what I'm working with and what they're coming into the room with is a sense of surprise that all of a sudden they have to navigate this world that for them is new and which they have also been told is new in general. And in that I've found your work, Jules, extremely helpful to thinking about and talking about some of these matters with parents. And then we can also talk at some point about what's happening on the level of the field and the tremendous levels of resistance that are characterizing clinical and professional conversations around trans children in psychoanalysis and mental health in general. I was seeing a possible connection to the very problematic line of thinking that parents sometimes express in their states of anxiety, where I wonder if this child is just doing this now because it's trendy. Some version, problematic version of that. And I find that your work, Jules, and historical archival research really can help ameliorate that type of problematic thinking. Yeah, I mean... Not much trendy about something that's been around for, <laughs> you know, hundreds and if not thousands of years and so many different cultural permutations. I mean, 
one of the luxuries maybe of being a historian or a scholar in the humanities as opposed to a clinical kind of worker is I am free to move well beyond kind of the disciplinary formations that have solidified around trans people and that have sort of dominated the conversation around sex, gender, and trans life in particular, right? And every time I I talk with clinicians, whether they're physicians, for example, or mental health providers, one of the things that I, I find myself thinking a lot about is like, what a difficult role it is to even be supportive because the entire crux of trans medicalization is just sort of nonsensical, right? It can't resolve the difference between the body and the mind. <laughs> and so, I mean, certain, I think, you know, certain fields are much more thoughtful about that. I actually think psychoanalysis is really interesting in that way. It's able to thematize or problematize that gap really well. And it's obviously a gap that we live. I don't mean to suggest that it doesn't exist, but but there are just some sort of baseline kinds of problems that I don't see as solvable because they're sort of conceptual problems that Western culture invented for itself. And a lot of that, I think, has to do with the adult-child relationship as well. And that was sort of what leads me back to what you were just saying, Romy. But like, I think so much about how trans children are received in the world is just about adult anxiety. And understandably so. I mean, I think the genius and the incredible gift of trans kids, especially this generation today, right, is that they will come to the adults in their life, right? And they'll say, hey, you were wrong about something pretty fundamental about how you have conceptualized me before maybe I was even born, how you've referred to me since the moment of my birth, how you've cared for me, how you related to me, how you've socialized me, right? It's a pretty powerful act to be able to come to adults, the people in charge of your life, and make that kind of declaration. It's one that many trans people, for whatever reason, don't do. That was not my childhood experience. I certainly had a kind of trans childhood, but not really the kind, like the ones that I write about in my book. Um, and so to my mind, there are two kinds of feelings that might show up a lot in that moment. One is respect, gratitude, just like being impressed, being in awe, right? But then we have to think about, we all live in a transphobic society. We've all been constituted by transphobia, whether we are trans or not. And so I think the anxiety that parents experience is not irrational or illogical per se. It has really kind of sociogenic origins. It has historical origins. We can sort of look at where those come from. And I think one of the things that's so interesting, exciting, and anxiety-inducing about trans kids is that they challenge the adults around them and say, actually, I am capable of knowing something about myself that overturns all conventional wisdom. And that is an experience that I think a lot of trans people of any age can relate to, having to basically invent an understanding of yourself in the absence of any cultural context or support for your own experience. These are immense feats that trans people routinely pull off in the name of their own survival and affirmation. And I think that they're just sometimes so powerful, they kind of scare the hell out of people. And I think there's an additional anxiety, and I'm, I'm kind of gesturing in directions in Avi's work that I've really sort of benefited from myself. A lot of the mental health professionals that I've talked to who see families with trans youth, you know, they're seeing families that are nominally supportive, not the families that hear their child is trans and kick them out of the house and never see them again, which are many, right? Or houses or families in which trans youth never come out because they realize it's not safe enough to do so. But the ones where they have and their parents are at least 
receptive enough to reach out to someone that they presumably grant some sort of professional (laughs) accreditation to, then the anxieties that I sort of hear coming through that channel are very consistent, right? A lot of them are like, I'm just scared for my kid. I see the writing on the wall. I see these political movements bearing down. I see the laws that my state legislature is trying to pass. I see how difficult it is to survive different kinds of transphobic violence in the world. I'm just scared for my kid. And then that combines with this sort of notion we have of children as fundamentally plastic, malleable creatures. And it really opens the door to thinking, well, Maybe they aren't really. It's one of these fascinating examples where loving children can work against children's interests. Where it's like, I really love and care for my child. So from my perspective, it is logical to try to protect them from being or becoming trans because that will increase their basically their life chances by a certain schema, right? And it's not an illogical thought, but it is also a transphobic thought and feeling. And and I think there are just some real interesting kind of adult child anxieties that I just don't see people being given permission to entertain, to begin to digest. And it's hard to do it in a sort of state of political emergency. But I think it's also probably pretty hard to do it in a lot of clinical settings. Although I feel like, (laughs) in fact, some of the people who I'm the most impressed with in the work that they do have tended to be psychoanalysts, which I'm fascinated by as someone, you know, who's not super well versed in psychoanalysis or in psychoanalytic practice myself. But those are some of the kinds of observations that I really feel like link the spirit, but also maybe the letter of some of the work that we're both doing. You know, I was thinking about what you were saying, Jules, about what it takes for a child to appear before an adult and articulate themselves to that adult as countering all sorts of expectations and investments that the adults have put on them. And I'm also thinking of the ways in which kind of like these claims are never complete claims, meaning that however they are made, they cannot answer all questions. They are rife with contradictions and they come with all kinds of inconsistencies, which is, by the way, the way that childhood communicates itself in its own language of kind of like paradox and an internal incoherence. But we demand a certain kind of coherence and accounting of oneself, of children that inhabit non-normative identities, like queer identities or whose experience is emergent in a way that might be in the present or might coagulate in the future into a trans identity. We demand a certain kind of accounting. Like I I have parents who often say to me, well, but when I ask her, how do you know? She can't tell me. And that is such an impossible question that we we don't ask of cis children. We don't ask of straight children. I think oftentimes children experience these questions as demands placed upon them and that can then begin to grind away at their own sense of security about what they understand about themselves. And this is where things begin to get extremely complicated, at least in the clinical setting. And I was also thinking about what you were saying about what it's like to make these claims in a context of a political emergency which is trans life has never been safe, but it feels especially unsafe in ways that are kind of like the legislative attacks on trans children and trans rights right now are especially intense. But I'm also have been thinking a lot about how that syndicates with parents' own anxieties about what is going to be good for their child. I have a lot of sympathy for parents who are really struggling with how do I provide an environment for my child to thrive in when the world is waiting to kind of like come at them and at me. 
at me as a parent. I mean, we know that in, in Texas, supporting your child is now under attack as well. So there's all of these, all of these layers, which working clinically, we don't so much work in fleshing out these forces, but from within the operations of these forces. Could you, for our listeners too, Avi, say just briefly what you're pointing to when you say in Texas? Some people may not know, actually. Sure. There's a series of legislative actions that are happening, not just in Texas, but also in Tennessee, in Ohio, in Mississippi, where the mere existence of trans children is put under question. And parents and healthcare workers who are working in affirmative ways with trans children are seen as abusive, are not just seen in a theoretical way, but are treated, their efforts to treat them through the law as if abusing children by supporting their identities and providing trans-related healthcare. So for example, the kind of work that I do in New York City would be illegal. Where is it? Ohio, Mississippi? Where is it, Joel's Alabama, it's now illegal, yeah, for Mm -hmm. anyone under 19. It's true. I mean, these aren't abstract, right? I mean, I think in some ways, it's sort of the, I mean, I hate saying this as a historian, because it's, you know, also like history isn't linear and doesn't tend in any particular direction. But there are so many things that have come home to roost over the past century that are like, this is a weird metaphor, they're coming home to roost right now, right? And I was just thinking about this, in relation to what you were saying, I think one of the enormous challenges of this moment is not just that there's still so much medical gatekeeping, right? The status quo for trans people, but especially for young people, was not particularly great. Very few trans youth who had access to gender-affirming care to begin with. And so, of course, it's much worse for it to be illegal, as it now is in the state of Alabama, which, you know, forcibly detransitions any child that was living their life already. But it's like we can't make any progress in addressing legacies of harm in clinical settings that are like directly about the history of medicine and psychology and psychiatry, because we're now having to, especially as trans people, ally ourselves with the people that we like, you know, haven't necessarily always enjoyed being around. However, there have been huge strides in improvement, like the emergence of this gender-affirming care model where the role of clinicians is not to decide if you are trans or if you are trans enough, right? But is rather to sort of listen to what you want and then support you in getting access with a bunch of caveats and asterisks, right? But I actually think like part of the challenge has always been, I don't know if there's such a thing as gender-affirming care for children because like, So much of how children move through the world is completely conditional on adults being gatekeepers, right? And some of that is not illogical. Really young children are not as capable of doing everything as teenagers. But there's some real interesting challenges that I think trans young people ignite there that are hard to deal with. But in some ways, I think that that fundamental vulnerability is really old, right? In looking at the history of trans medicine, what I kept noticing was children were of research interest, whether to endocrinologists, whether to psychologists, whether to physicians, plastic surgeons, interdisciplinary university hospital teams, they were interested in them because they saw children as basically etiology incarnate. Ah, well, if we spend time with kids, we'll find out where pathologies come from, right? Was the, the I'm talking about in, you know, the early to mid 20th century here. 
So that was certainly the language they were using, pathology, abnormality, disorder. And one of the interesting kinds of problems is trans people and as well intersex people are routinely used and abused by medical research to try and find the origin of sex, the origin of sex differentiation, the origin of gender development, and then to figure out how to intervene into the body as it grows. And of course, no one ever finds that. There's no spoiler alert, right? There is no secret origin, but children are so easily made vulnerable in that way because we turn to them to find the origin of something. And so if there is a project turned against transness, it would find its foothold in attacking children. It's a little bit harder, although who knows for how long, right? To question a trans adult's ability or right to make decisions about themselves. Well, okay, lots of people's right to make decisions about their bodies are being questioned in this moment in the United States, but it nevertheless is just structurally harder for kids, right? What a historically dysphoric moment for trans people, because there is a big difference between being trans, and this was not, you know, necessarily fun for people either, but being trans in a moment where there was no word for that, where there was no internet, where there was no obvious community, and you really had to figure it out on your own, persevere, read medical texts, right? or just follow your own desires without necessarily strong concepts attached to them, at least until you found community versus a moment now where, okay, great. If you're feeling something like dysphoria, you might stumble upon that word, but the whole world is trained to look for you. The whole world is trained to see you. And has this term now, 40, 50 years ago, right-wing pundits did not know the term gender dysphoria, right? They didn't know anything about trans people. They didn't care about trans people, right? One of the stories I sometimes like to tell about the opening of the first gender clinic in the U.S. at Johns Hopkins Hospital in 1966 was at the press conference they held to open and announce the thing. They had like literally a priest, a rabbi, and like you know, they had faith leaders come and just check in and be like, yeah, we're cool with this. This is fine. These people are here for medical reasons. You know, not a redemptive moment per se, but like just think about how different that is than what we're facing down today. And I think that makes like, again, just for a really complicated wrestling with, gosh, I wonder what makes trans people feel dysphoric in this moment, right? Like how much of it is the world as it's structured and how much of it really is this internal difference. And maybe we'll never know the answer, but it feels like a question worth exploring in complex terms. It takes me in a direction of, I have a particular peeve with inclusivity. And I think that the notion of inclusivity is actually has a lot to do I blame the notion of inclusivity for a lot of those problems in the sense that instead of trying to contend with the novelty of trans, so to speak, and I'm putting this in quotation marks, as an invitation to rethink some things overall, not just to encompass trans people, but to actually rethink the way we think gender overall, to rethink the way in which we think racialized gender overall, and what racialization has to do with gendering to begin with, how we baked that into the notion of gender from the start. The liberal response to transness, I think, has created this tremendous problem, which is that we have as a culture reached for the low-hanging fruit of how to deal with not hating trans people, which is an ongoing problem. And the answer to that has been, let's just include them. Let's add 57 gender pronouns or 17 categories. And I'm, I'm all for that. I don't have a problem, obviously, like people should be calling themselves whatever they want to be called. People should respect that. I, th that's not the issue. The issue is that this is such a 
an evasion of dealing with the invitation, if not the challenge, that to our dominant ways of thinking about gender and race that trans has introduced to spaces that were otherwise not thinking beyond the binary. And for that, I think psychoanalysis is very much to blame. But I think that American psychoanalysis has failed miserably in how we have taken up trans. Yes, like we we don't see, and I'll make a, a generalization, this is not 100% true. There are pockets of a lot of resistance to trans existence that are fighting back pretty strongly within psychoanalysis. And more people are coming out of the woodwork with that. Like I do a lot of faculty training workshops in psychoanalytic institutes and the things that I hear privately not on the podium, not in the agora of psychoanalysis, but privately about transness and the viability of transness and trans life are very different than what we see in print. But even with that, I think that the dominant model in American psychoanalysis has been one of inclusivity. And I think that's just not good enough. It's just not enough. Thank you for that. I mean, I think it's it's sometimes difficult to articulate to people how lazy a liberal inclusive response is, but actually how I mean, it's absolutely conservative. It tries to domesticate and dismiss and say, well, trans people don't need anything Mm -hmm. from the world. We just need to acknowledge that they exist and not actively try to remove them. Well, no, we need a lot more Mm -hmm. because it is itself a defensive kind of inclusivity. It says, well, I'm granting you, aren't you so lucky? I'm granting Mm -hmm. you existence in my little garden Mm -hmm. on my terms. And I acknowledge no wrongdoing. Mm-hmm. Right. And it's like, well, ho, ho, hold on a second. Right. And and so it's just fundamentally unenthusiastic and uninterested mm-hmm. in trans people. The things that trans people know would blow other people's minds. No wonder they're terrified of us right? Um, or of the power of what we know about the possibility, how stretchy life can really be and how incredible it can be. But there's a lot of defensiveness there. So thank you for putting it in that way. I think what we're getting at is the idea which has been emergent in psychoanalytic conversation of the social unconscious and the way that we have internalized norms that are unconscious and come from outside of us, come from those structures and systems that we live in. We have a different view of the person than we used to have a 100 years ago, which is that we are formed in relation to other people. And then it's very hard to tell on some levels who's who, because we're internalizing them, they are internalizing us, there's a constant shift back and forth and an overlap at all times. But I think we're dealing with that now with all of our mm. patients. And I don't not saying that to be inclusive, <laughs> I'm saying it to try and highlight <laughs> the idea that there's a social unconscious that we're now more aware of, and that complicates our work. And what a gap. I mean, I think the the dominant vocabulary, mm-hmm. the dominant grammar, which has emerged from the United States from a very middle class, white, college educated milieu is a notion of gender as internal identity. It's I'll be very brief in railing against this, but I think it's a horrifically bad concept. I think it's incredibly bourgeois. I think it's incredibly racist and culturally specific. And I think it has almost no empirical value. But this idea that's promulgated all over the place that like you just have, it's like the return of the homunculus, you know, the idea of the tiny miniature (laughs) hiding in your pineal gland, because this is also comes with a kind of born this way, neoliberal, individualist American mandate for everyone in the world to become 
an abstract American, right, is like that you have some gender hiding inside of you. It belongs only to you. It arose on its own. And it actually has an existence independent of acculturation or relationality. This is absurd. I mean, mm-hmm. it's it's like an anti-human <laughs> sentiment. It, it presumes there's no such thing as culture. There's no such thing as relationality, that the psyche is closed off from the rest of the world. And I just, I, I really, really, really dislike this concept. I think it has complicated roots. Partially they are in a certain version of behavioral psychology, but they also have been taken up on the left as progressive. Mm-hmm. But in any case, right, it's like, I can only imagine how much when the bar is set like that, my God, people must feel horrible. I think one of the things that really blew me away the first time I read an article by you, Avi, about work you did with a young trans girl was the the incredible anxiety put on her to be legible, to be consistent, to package her femininity up for the adults in her life that had accumulated and accumulated, had stacked and stacked and ossified like a sedimentary rock to the point that it was starting to become traumatic for her. It's actually really cruel to ask that of children, right? And there's something so powerful, I think, about then coming into the analytic encounter and just to be introduced to a collaborative, empathetic other. I think trans people suffer this problem in a unique way, especially because so many of us have such terrible experience with with clinicians. We need better ways to talk about this. But this is actually a place where where there is a role for supportive clinicians to play. Jules, there are a lot of things that I'm thinking about in response to what you were just sharing. But I was thinking, and Avi, you write about this problem of watchful waiting. I think this supposition about the gender homunculus within is predicated on that idea, right? And so I'm hoping that you can both say more, but Avi, I was going to ask you to elaborate on that particular problem in terms of how psychoanalysts are intervening and other mental health providers as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would be glad to. I was actually very glad that you brought this up, Jules, because the liberal approach to trans and to and to gender non-binary increasingly so is somebody has come to discover their true self and what we need to do is support that and what i want to put pressure on here is not the support part but the true self part as if there is something originary that you peel back the layers and you find it and once you found it everybody has to rally around it as opposed to thinking of gender as an emergent process that for some people coagulates in one place and that needs to be respected and for some people is more mobile and that needs to be respected and oftentimes you know we were talking about parents kind of like question of affirmation when they bring kids to clinicians but there's also the question of parents who say my son picked up a doll like should i be calling her him she and there's also the sense of like the anxiety proliferates around gender categories like what do we call that because once you have a name you know where the danger will come from, what you're expected to treat it as, how you should organize yourself. Like, and these are kind of like going to the supermarket and picking up a package. It comes with defenses. It comes with certain constellation of like social relations and social anxieties. And I wonder what it would be like to both make room. And I think there's a tension between these two make room for the fact that kids need to be able to articulate themselves to themselves and to us in the way that they do. And I say this both for 
normative cisgender identities and for trans or non-binary identities, and to also treat these as potentially changeable, but not through our action or through another person's pressure, but through one's own psychic development in whichever way it's going to go without having an end in mind. And I think that that's what psychoanalysis is really struggling to do. That's why I am so frustrated with the notion of what what you call the homunculus jewels or the notion of a core gender, which was, as you know very well, Jules, kind of like part of what happened in UCLA with Stoller, with like the whole notion of gender identity. In a way, it was offered as an expansion, but it baked conservatism into our very notion of how to think about transness. Well, and, you know, I can't help but slide in a juicy story about Robert Stoller at, you know, UCLA. This is a place that opened a gender clinic in 1962, but never offered officially certainly not gender affirmation surgery that was never on the table. And so saw a really wide variety of people. Some were intersex, some were gay and lesbian, some were trans, right? And then the clinicians didn't necessarily care who was who at the beginning. And, and so it was an interesting clinic because it saw a lot of people, but Stoller, who is one of these interesting figures, but, you know, remembered for, for his conservatism, indeed. Right? One of the big stories about Stoller's career when it came to trans people, of course, was had to do with the trans kid, the one who's remembered as Agnes, who went to UCLA in the late 1950s and basically presented saying like, I don't know what happened, but at puberty, I just started feminizing. Mm-hmm. And, and the medical team came in, ran tests, and they were like, oh my gosh, this child who was assigned male at birth has endogenous estrogen levels, like fascinating. And at the time, you know, there was a lot of hope that being trans was going to be found to have a biological basis. Mm -hmm. And so there was an incredible interest, even amongst sort of psychologically oriented researchers. And so they were like, great, we want to work with you. They give her access to gender confirmation surgery. And then a few years later, she comes back and she sits down and she says, yeah, I was lying. Mm -hmm. Actually, I've been stealing my mom's estrogen tablets since I was a teen and I faked the whole thing. And Stoller, however Stoller felt about that, let's just say he wasn't pleased to have been hoodwinked, so to speak. And it's really this kind of parable about what trans people will do to survive and the ways that our interactions with clinicians are just as calculated on our end because we lack the power. The way that trans people have gone along with the idea of the true self, right, is of course just strategic. I mean, of course you say what you gotta say, Mm -hmm. but I agree that it's an incredibly unhelpful notion. And, And this idea of waiting, because if gender is a core identity, then the purpose of childhood is nothing, it's passive, right? You just wait for that core identity to express itself as it apparently inexorably will do over time. And so then if you don't like trans kids, you can say, well, don't give them anything until they hit legal adulthood. Or now this absurd idea that the brain is apparently unfinished in its development until 25. So no one under 25 should be allowed to do anything. If we really think that gender is just a core identity that belongs to people, then support means doing nothing. It merely means granting that the other person is there. And that just seems like such a weak account of what it means to be in the world with other people, right? To be surprised by them, to be challenged by them, to grow with them, right? And then it it also presumes, again, it preserves both the idea that adults are subtle, like, oh, our gender doesn't change. 
It's like, well, hello, have you heard of aging? Everyone's gender change. What do you think menopause is? What do you think getting old is? Like, you truly, your gender changes, right? But also, like, your sense of self changes, your physical body changes. Like, most people on hormone replacement therapy are middle-aged cisgender women. Like, they should be a part of this conversation. There's a lot we could share with one another. It also preserves the idea that cis people don't really need to do anything with their genders, that they're just beautifully expressed. I mean, the idea of cisgender is, I also think, Absurd. really, it really strains my patience. Like, I use it as an analytic mm -hmm. to describe a system, right, the system of gender that we have. But the idea of cisgender, I mean, it was just created as a conceptual opposite to transgender. And so it can't possibly refer, there's no one on this earth who's felt mm -hmm. experience of their own body and self coincides perfectly in perfect harmony with the gender slapped on their birth certificate. That's absurd, right? That itself is an unhelpful presupposition. One of the other idioms maybe for thinking about transness or thinking about transition is as a kind of chasing of desire. And when you chase desire, you're chasing something that's not congealed as an object yet. And that can't tell you the truth. It can only tell you a kind of vector of want. And I think one thing that I've learned from being trans in the world is how to validate wanting as a state of being. I think that's something that people in general might really benefit from, this idea that we can chase things without knowing the destination. And then you enlist collaborators, partners in crime. I mean, so much for me about being in trans community, friends, lovers, partners, is actually transitioned, so to speak, together, which is to say not from one point to another, but being in relation, actually. I mean, this is something I'm writing about in some creative work, but my partner is a trans man, and in other sort of what we call T for T relationships in the community, there is this kind of incredible, like it's it's a it's a kind of experience that's actually so hard to describe. I like having to belabor it at, at length in a creative book project. Imagine that gender is not this private little drama that you go and see a psychiatrist about or a doctor about. I mean, you go and get what you need from them, but it's this thing that you share, that you trade body parts, you trade psychic components, you trade masculinity and femininity back and forth. Oh, here, you need this. Well, that was given to me by the world when I was born. And I don't need that. I'm going to give it to you since you're trans masculine. Oh, you can give me this thing that you never... You know, like there are other idioms. Right. And there are other modalities. And it strikes me that a lot of trans people's vernacular language for explaining ourselves amongst one another are all about psychic interdependency and the interpenetration of people with one another, that we are always multiple. And maybe there is something about having to learn how to leave behind one social role and enter a different one that makes you believe that people are allowed to be more than one thing, right? <laughs> I really think there are like more exciting conversations to be had when both the transphobic pretense that we need to know who is or that we could know who is trans and we should police that and also the liberal platitude of don't change anything, just say it's okay to exist, right? Once we give that up, like, oof, the rewards are so many. And I think they feel like they lead me. I had to learn psychoanalytic theory in graduate school. So it lives in my head, but I don't really use it in my work. But what I always come back to it to try and explain my own life, because it's, to me, the most robust grammar I have for explaining how I am both more than a sovereign person, and also how I share from and benefit from the other people in my life in ways that are unintentional often and hard to anticipate in advance, but are really rich and kind of the the moments in life that are densest with significance, I feel like are these moments of sharing subjectivity 
to me, this is always going to be a project of laboring, of laboring towards something, even though the something is not a determinate destination, which makes it both troublesome, but also adventurous. Life, in my mind, is not supposed to be lived on the grammar of safety or security, which may be very strange to hear, for you, Jules, to hear psychoanalysts say that. And I think that, of course, physical safety is important. The safety to express oneself is important. But life that is conjugated by safety is also a stalled life, in my opinion. So the kinds of what I hear you talk about, Jules, to me, sounds more like a certain kind of movement rather than a certain kind of arrival or a certain kind of steadiness. And I have a lot of faith in movement, but movement is hard for us as analysts. I think it's hard culturally, but it's also hard for us as analysts. Like you were talking about Agnes and you were talking about the resource of lying. To me, Agnes is also a story of scholar learning nothing Yeah, because one can learn from watching what happened in the context of what would from a certain kind of stance, look like a lie, and from a certain kind of stance, look like a survival tactic. And it is our job as analysts to then do the autopsy of what we've caused and what we can learn from it so that at least the blood that was shed becomes something useful as opposed to just damage. Thank you, Avi. One of the themes that I'm picking up on and pivoting back to, I realize I didn't explain what watchful waiting is in case some of our listeners don't know what that is, and the very concrete detrimental ramifications of this approach in which a clinician says there could be damage, therefore we must wait for the child to be sure that they know who their homunculus is, and then we'll know we're right, versus movement, which is what you're talking about, Avi. And I'm wondering if you also see a link between this idea of movement in the way you were conceptualizing it and this problem of watchful waiting. I can jump in to say the following. Whenever I've talked with clinicians who talk about watchful waiting, the question that I always have is, Wait until what? What is the marker? What are you waiting for? What will tell you we've waited long enough? And I had a very interesting, complicated, and difficult conversation with David Bell in print about him saying, you wait. And I said, until what? And he said, well, some people have to transition. And I said to him, how do you tell that they have to transition? And he said, because all else fails. So basically, this is not his wording. This is what I'm adding now to that wording. So basically, to me, that sounds like you keep somebody because you have the power to, you keep them stagnant until you feel convinced, not even that what they're going to do is valid, but that there's no hope for them. And then you throw your hands up in the air and you're like, sure, go ahead and transition. So to me, watchful waiting always has these questions. It sounds very reasonable when you think of it who would say no to being thoughtful, to being careful? But rhetorics of safety have always been leveled against non-normative experience as a way of controlling the other. So watchful waiting, to me, seems to have more to do with the person who wants to do the watching rather than the person who is doing the waiting. And I think that that's very critical for us as clinicians to be thinking about. Yeah, I mean, you know, in its worst iterations, it has led to a great deal of abuse, just staggering. It's one of the sad outcomes of the research that I did that there are, there are things that I read that I, I 
I mean, I read them, you know, <laughs> written down often by clinicians. I still don't have the language to express how horrified I am at how clinicians have mistreated trans people, especially children, especially through this logic of waiting. Because you, the bar can just change forever. It's getting raised right now. I'm watching it being raised in real time. You raise it all the way to, I saw a right-wing Christian pundit suggest that all trans healthcare should be illegal. There should never be a moment where that threshold is passed, right? When it, you know, once you open that door, you can go all the way. The truth is, as someone who studied the history of, of medicalization, trans people, along with intersex people, were utilized as experimental research subjects to create the conditions through which all sex and gender medicine are currently practiced, right? So it's like when anyone pops a birth control pill or anyone takes estrogen during menopause or a man takes testosterone because of low testosterone, that's thanks to the medical abuse of intersex and trans people. But biologically, empirically speaking, there isn't really that much difference between trans and non-trans people at the level of medical care right? The actual things, the interventions are the same. They're bio-identical. The human body, like many animal bodies, has like an incredible capacity to transform its sex under the right conditions. And so, okay, but trans people are treated as the exception. We're the ones who are confusing. We're the ones whose demands to live in our bodies with some degree of joy and happiness don't make any sense. We're the ones for whom taking the exact same hormone <laughs> as a cisgender person for the same reason at the same dosage is somehow different. And the only way you can get to that line of reasoning is when you do not fundamentally accept that being trans is good. It's as simple as that. It's what I say all the time to folks who are like, how do we stand up for trans kids? Real easy. Say out loud to everyone around you that trans childhood is a good outcome. It's a happy place to be. It's wanted. It's desired. It's not a, well, if all else fails or a reluctantly I accept or a, well, I couldn't force them out of it, so I'll let them or when they're 18 or when they're 25 or when they're this or that, right? No. If you simply accept that being trans is not a bad outcome of life, then you are released of the burden of all of these other prevarications. And I think then we start to have a conversation about like, okay, if the role of clinicians is not to pass judgment, but is simply to work from the premise that being trans is a good state of being in and of itself, then... I just imagine it's much easier to start this conversation over like, what's holding you back from living your life like that, right? Because it's trans people too. I think the concept of internalized transphobia is a scrappy metaphor to talk about what does it mean, right? I think it's really hard. I've had tough conversations with other trans people with myself about this, where it's like, oh my God, I'm the most transphobic person I know, <laughs> right? Or it's like my unconscious is, or hey, my nervous system is really transphobic. I have fight or flight responses in my sleep. I'm terrified. I sometimes feel like a little primate out in the open savanna having just left the trees. It's like, oh my God, a predator's coming, a predator's coming. Well, yeah, that's a reasonable response to the world that I live in. So if I could go to a clinician to work in a collaborative space where I didn't have to worry that the clinician maybe didn't think that me existing is in and of itself good, right? I mean, that that I think is the key. And it's true for adults, but I just think it's sort of twice as true for kids because we have a really hard time taking kids seriously. We think childhood is just a passageway onto something more important.
And so it's hard to accept that who a child is right now, which will change, can be a good thing. But I think if we were able to push ourselves in that direction, I just think that that clears a hurdle where I could imagine collaborative, supportive, truly affirmative clinical exchanges. And and I, I guess I feel like, and let me offer that to you, Avi, like, I feel like that's, I'm saying in a different way, part of what I hear your work really, really getting at. So Avi, one of the things you write about so cogently is how to help clinicians think about how to manage their own countertransference to patients who are trans or families who are resisting the idea that their kid might be trans and so forth. I wonder if you could say some more about that, because I think it addresses what Jules is, is talking about, too. Thank you, Billy, for that question. I think, actually, it connects very much to me with a conversation we're having earlier about the notion like of a true gender. Like the first thing that I try to do is help parents to not think and clinicians to not think of, you need to find what the right gender is and then support that or kind of like help the patient get to that. And one thing that I usually say to parents, and I also have been saying it to clinicians when I work with faculty or supervisors, I say, you have to be like half a step behind the patient, meaning your patient is leading you. You're not like three meters back and you're not the one taking them somewhere, even if that somewhere is where you think they're going. You're tracking them really closely, but you're half a step behind. So one of the difficulties that I see, like, so for example, we could think about Stoller. Stoller, even the assignation of lying, I would say, is always already a counter-transferential response. Because one could respond to that with, oh, wow, how did I miss what happened here between us to take it back to thinking more relationally that this person had to lie to me. To ask these kinds of questions, I think, can be very important, even if it happens after the fact. And part of what we are very lucky to have the space for as analysts is that we get to go back and do it again. If we don't mess up too badly, we get to go back and do it again. And our patients can be depending on how badly we mess up and what the relationship is, they can be forgiving if we can learn from the ways in which we mess up. And I think that there's a lot of humility that's needed for that. That's part of what I'm trying to write about, the arrogance of thinking you know, even if you think you know in an inclusive way. One of the things that jumped out to me about your work, Jules, and kind of like the piece that you shared with us about your work with uh, Rigarai, was there's some phrase that you have there, which I think is also the ethics of psychoanalysis, like resisting the invitation to invade the other, yes. which I thought was like, it's such yes. a question of, it lies at the core of psychoanalytic ethics. Even if you're invading the other to affirm them, and you're like half a step ahead of them, that's still violence. And I think this is a useful way to think about that, both for trans-affirming psychoanalysts and trans-harming psychoanalysts that we need to kind of like take a step back and let the process unfold. Yeah, one of the things I'm sort of on the same track that you're on, Avi, when I read your paper, Jules, about the advice that Arigari gave you when you were seeking some direction, and she told you that you should go sit by a tree every day, right? For as long as you needed, and what was the quote, to cultivate a spiritual relationship between your pain and the tree's energy. That's how you will heal yourself. 
And as someone who has used that technique in my own life, I thought that was just such amazing advice in terms of what you're talking about, Aviv, not doing violence, not taking over, not being ahead of where the other person is. And it's such a hard thing and to not do. Being seduced by the fantasy that anyone could give us a truth that we needed, right? This is a story from young yeah. in my life, from before I transitioned when I was studying with a major continental philosopher and was suffering and I didn't have a word for it yet for so many reasons that I now understand better. And I went to her thinking, okay, here's the wisest person I know who also had practiced as a psychoanalyst. And I was just like, tell me, hey, philosopher of sexual difference, tell me about my problem with sexual difference, right? And she said, no, I can't do that. I do not have that power. She refused that. And I think there's a powerful lesson, certainly for the analyst here, but for all of us in our relation to hoping that if we only have, as you were saying, Avi, the right idea, the right word, that's not really what we need. It's the process along the way that makes us capable of living and living well and having a happy quality of life and of being surprised. A life without surprise, which would be a life of core identity, would be a horrible life. And so that's hard. It's hard in a moment of suffering. I mean, I really, really, really was very angry at that time. And I scoffed and I was like, a tree? But now as someone who communes with the trees, like, let me tell you, it was worth the wait. A very different kind of waiting. There was no one watching over me. And that mm -hmm, was, mm -hmm. you know, its own whole thing. But I think on the other end, there's a wisdom that comes from these life experiences that if we can find the ways to channel it back into the work that we do, I think it does bring us to a kind of ethical aperture and that that is not a fault or a failure of us as people, right? We have failed trans people, okay, collectively. We're failing them right now. Mm -hmm. We've failed trans youth very deeply. But it is not because we have not found the one true beacon or model mm -hmm. or diagnosis or plan for addressing them. That is not the failure. In fact, that hides from us our true, true failure. But I think what it also <laughs> hides from us is the fact that we have everything we need right now to do differently. We have this wisdom here in the world. We may not all experience it equally all the time, but amongst one another, right? I think one of the joys of sharing this time and this space and this conversation with all of you today is it's palpable. And I think that some of it is just a question of logistics and scale, but we really do have all that we need to know already here on the earth. The question is how to live in a way together that allows it to take root and care for people who really do deserve for us to do better by them. That story exemplified the waiting, the waiting that the analyst needs to do. But thank you. Thank you so much. I see we're at our time for today, but I want to see if anybody has any last, Avier Jules, if you have any last thought or comment you want to make. Just gratitude to be listened to, but also to talk, right, and to develop a kind of common language together, I think is a privilege and, and a pleasure and one that I'll admit in a lot of my public facing roles, I go without most days. So thank you for, for this openness and this depth. And honestly, I could talk all day long. So shut me up before I do. <laughs> I'm taking away from this conversation a new idea, which is the idea that I view that you're suggesting of the emerging vista, that we're always mm -hmm. on a journey and an adventure to a, an emerging vista that yeah. there isn't a single destination and that that vista will not always feel good in in real time like i'm taking a lot from jules saying mm -hmm. that when you heard this from Mary Garai, jules you felt 
really? Like, F you, like, give me something. Yeah. But, and that one has to sit with that. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you, Jules, for gracing us with your presence and with your brilliance. Thank you both so much. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Amazing conversation. Our time is done for today. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. 